the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast, your weekly briefing on the stories shaping shipping. I'm Richard Mead, the editor of Lloyd's List. Coming up this week, we will be examining why the shipping sector still has a long way to go when it comes to plugging the gender pay gap. And I'll be asking whether the container sector is trying to run a marathon before it can walk when it comes to data and the digitally fueled aspirations to move up the value chain into logistics. But first, carbon. It's now over a month since the International Maritime Organization managed to wrestle an agreement out of governments to half emissions from shipping by at least 50% by 2050. But now the real work begins as the industry and governments start to hammer out the details of what happens next. Joining me to discuss next steps is Anastasios Adamopoulos, our reporter and IMO expert. Anas, hi. Hello, Richard. You were inside the meeting that set these historic targets for shipping to follow, and I think it's fair to say that the 50% cut can be viewed as a success, politically speaking. But the battles aren't over yet, and realistically, the real work for the industry is just beginning. So what's yet to be decided, and where are the big battlegrounds yet to be fought? So I think you're right. Uh, politically, it is a very big victory for the IMO. Um, but at the same time, there's a wide recognition that most of the work has yet to be done. Uh, in the short term, we need to decide on the the measures that will be adopted that can curb emissions immediately. So that's between 2018 and 2023 that they will be adopted. Um, those could be a number of things, but I think the dominant ones would be perhaps bringing the EDI phase three uh, forward, so before 2025, which is currently scheduled for, um, and perhaps introducing mandatory slow steaming in some form. Um, so essentially, candidate short-term measures will be discussed and adopted uh, in the next five years. Mm. So I think as far as implementation, that is the main thing. On the there is also a political issue um, which is important and which will affect these measures, and that is the commitment within the strategy to consider the needs of developing, less developed, um, and small island developing states. Mm. And I think the IMO needs to figure out in the short term how that actually applies within the strategy before it can come to some conclusive yeah. Uh, revised strategy in 2023. So that is still a political question that's yet to be unanswered. That was always the stumbling block mm-hmm. within the IMO. Of course, the other big political threat was this threat of European Union regionalism. They um, had a, a, a lingering uh, piece of leverage over the IMO that said, if you do not come to an agreement that is sufficiently robust, we will go down the route of including shipping within our emissions trading scheme. Now, that appears to have been averted. Uh, I was talking to the IMO Secretary General in uh, Asia last week. He seems to be confident that the threat of EU regionalism has at least been averted for now. Um, What do you think? Has it gone away? Um, I think for the time being, the answer is yes. Uh, Obviously, these targets are not what the EU wanted exactly, but the the reception from the Commissioner for Transport and the the NGOs that apply pressure uh, was generally receptive of the the strategy. So I, I would say that... We, sh- we wouldn't be expecting, at least until 2023, any regional measures to be introduced from the EU. But there's always going to be that public pressure there uh, from the parliament, from NGOs, from other stakeholders, from Europe, mm. uh, to make sure that, that w- when that strategy is revised in, te- in 2023, um, that the targets are as high as possible. 
So I would say no measures. I, I wouldn't expect any measures, but definitely public pressure. That 2023 date is really key because mm. although everybody is focusing on the 50% target by 2050, by 2023, we could actually see a different uh, strategy come out of the IMO anyway. Mm, exactly. Um, and I think that's, that's a very important point because I think a lot of people are betting that they're going to get their way when it comes to 2023. It's important to remember that the IMO is going to collect data from vessel emissions from 2019 to 2021. And a lot of that revised strategy will depend on that. Uh, so there's a lot yet that we don't know about what that strategy will look like. But, um, yeah, I think it's definitely too early to, to say the EU will, uh, has definitively backed off. Which is crucial from the industry's point of view, because although the headlines are focused on this 2050 cut, and uh, everybody is talking about the fact that the industry now has clear direction in terms of where it is going, halving emissions by 2050, Realistically, they don't have any real clarity in terms of what the actual strategy is going to be in terms of the legislative framework that is going to uh, encapsulate what they need to do. And of course, shipping is making investments with 20 to 30 year lifespan. What does a ship owner do right now in terms of looking at what may or may not happen between now and 2023? Are they going to hold off decisions, do you think, until we have clear you know, some clarity? Yeah, I think having spoken to a few already as well, uh, the, the the main idea that I get from them is that it is in fact too early to affect investments at the moment, uh, but it does give them a, a clear signal that we are on a decarbonization course and that this is what the future will probably look like. Uh, however, they're also depending on engine manufacturers, sh shipyards, fuel providers to come up with solutions uh, to these targets. So I think in their eyes, generally speaking, they're holding off for now. They know we're going down this path. Uh, but from their perspective, the onus is now on other stakeholders uh, to come forward with the solutions. Excellent. Thank you very much, Alice. We're now one month on from UK companies having revealed the full extent of the gender pay gap in shipping. The results prove what we've known for some time. Not only are there disproportionately more men than women, the men are keeping all the good jobs. Joining me is Helen Kelly, our Europe Editor-in-Chief, to discuss what the industry is doing to address the gender pay gap. Hello, Helen. Hello. Now, Helen, you're, you've not only been leading this story for us at Lloyd's List, you're actually uh, a member of the Women in Maritime Task Force. Can you give us uh, an insight in terms of what the task force is doing and what this means for an industry that is so resolutely male, pale and stale? Yes, sure. Nicely put there. So uh, the Maritime UK Gender Task Force has been put together by Maritime UK and the UK government. And uh, the idea is to um, help support women within their careers in the UK maritime industry. And that could be from entering the industry, so somebody who is at the start of their career. Uh, it could be retaining the talent that it has within that industry um, and retaining talent um, from women who may have exited for various reasons, be that for um, looking after children or other caring responsibilities, and also in supporting women into more senior roles within the UK industry. Because that is a massive problem. The actual survey that spawned this task force has proved that it's not only just a question of pay gap, this is the actual structure of the industry. Male 
positions dominate the higher paid uh, aspects of all aspects of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that was very evident when we started to see the um, data being filed as part of the UK gender pay gap uh, survey. So, uh, yes, uh, women are predominantly in those junior positions, which, of course, are not as well paid. And as you go up through the ranking and the way that the gender pay gap reporting works is it splits companies into pay quartiles from lowest paid up to most senior paid, you'll see women dropping out of those quartiles as they go up the ranking. So by the time you get to the very best paid, there are very few women within the UK maritime industries. Mm. Now, of course, this is a UK-focused task force. It's got the support of the UK government, which is great. And I would argue that it's probably given us an interesting window on an international problem. But is there any indication from either within the task force or your reporting on this that we've got any insight on an international basis and is this gaining traction internationally? Yeah, I mean, it's, there's very little insight on an international basis. Um, there hasn't been any kind of international research done or kind of thorough survey done on an international level. Um, the HR consulting business, which is part of Spinnaker here in the UK, has done a survey of its members. It's a, about 2,000 members, but it's very heavily UK-focused. Um, it did extrapolate some of those figures globally and they broadly represent um, the gender pay gap that you see here in the UK, which is an average of 18% um, across the UK. That's not the um, shipping industry specifically, that's across the UK generally. Mm. But I mean, much of what we've heard of these you know, ways in which the industry is, is trying to address diversity have, I would argue, been largely reactive. Mm -hmm. Gender pay gap details were effectively dragged out of corporations in the UK. There is nobody that was offering these uh, prior to the mandate from the government. Um, you know, are there any examples of uh, either governments, bodies, or indeed companies internationally that are actually going above and beyond what I would argue is the least that we could expect in 2018? Yeah, not, not really any examples in a systematic type way. Certain companies are making certain efforts um, within their own businesses. Um, I've heard examples for uh, example from uh, the Port of Auckland, um, which was trying to get more women onto its dockside workforce, um, and it found that it was predominantly hiring men to operate its cranes, and to try and reverse that situation, it changed some of the metrics around which it looked to, you know, the skills that it was looking for and the types of experience it was looking for. Um, and it realised that they needed to have spatial awareness to operate these cranes, so instead of looking for people with dockside experience or seafarer experience, they looked for people who had experience of kind of a spatial nature. So they uh, managed to turn their dockside workforce around just by those few easy steps. Um, but as a kind of um, wider scope, there's not really a lot happening yet. The task force is a UK-focused operation. Um, shipping industry is an international industry. We account for 85% of global trade internationally. Is there any suggestion from either inside the task force or your reporting on this as an issue that uh, there are activities that are gaining traction internationally, not just in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. There's a number of projects underway. Uh, the big one, of course, is by Worcester International, which is the umbrella group that has been set up to uh, represent women internationally in the shipping industry. Mm. It has launched its own diversity committee, which will seek to promote women uh, into more senior positions uh, across the international community. It's also launched its Women Who Move the World campaign and uh, that is seeking to raise the awareness of women in shipping globally. 
So you're going to be uh, pulling a number of these themes together in a, in a special report. When can our readers expect to see that? That's right. Yes, we have done a very in-depth look into all these issues in our latest edition of The Intelligence magazine, and that is our Women in Shipping and Diversity report that is coming out this week. And also look out for our new email to subscribers on this topic due to come out this week as well. The brave new dawn of integrated container logistics is an interesting place to be right now. The promise of blockchain and widespread digital revolution is reshaping containerized strategy. And the likes of Maersk is pitching itself against US parcel giants like FedEx and UPS rather than traditional shipping competitors. But this digital optimism is not universally shared by the line's customers, many of whom are complaining that reliability is at an all-time low. There's a mismatch between the right ships and trade lanes, and far from a digital revolution, the industry hasn't even got basic data availability right yet. I'm joined by our containers editor, James Baker, to discuss this mismatch in the box industry. So, James, are the shippers right? Is the container sector trying to run a marathon before it can walk here? Well, certainly an argument that the um, that the carriers are, have still got quite a long way to go with what they're doing already and getting the basics right. Um, there are lines like Mersk, mm -hmm. for example, that's getting very heavily involved in technology with its blockchain tie-up with IBM. But arguably, they've still got to get things right with schedule reliability, port congestion, getting huge numbers of boxes off of large ships through small ports and into the inland networks to get to, so that the customers get their goods where they mm. want them delivered. Uh, I mean, I was out in Singapore last week and uh, I was talking to the likes of uh, Cargill, who were citing the traditional complaints that shippers always do. Reliability is not great. Schedule reliability is, still remains marginal. Um, there is a push to, at the moment, the carriers are trying to differentiate themselves and avoid commoditizing or having a commoditized product in which where they can only compete on price. So they're trying to add value-added services. So they're trying to guarantee better schedule reliability. And you know, part, of, part of the digitalization process is working towards this. But unless they get these things right, then no amount of, of digital whiz-bang is going to, going to solve the customer's problem of having getting the products where they want them at the right time. So it's not all rhetoric. I mean, there is some real efficiencies to be had here with digitalization. But one of the quotes I got last week out in Asia was that 50% you know, of the data being collected by the shippers themselves is not complete. And you know, therefore, you know, any decisions we're making in terms of big data are questionable at this stage. I mean, this is a question of getting the basics right. We haven't even got the supply and demand balance right yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I've been speaking, I've been writing a story next week, um, interviewing Cindy Miller um, from UPS, the, the president of Global Freight Forwarding, who's very pointedly pointed out the fact that it, it, it's one thing having visibility, knowing where your container is, but knowing where your container is stuck doesn't get your container unstuck. And that's that's the problem that the um, that the shippers and the BCOs are having at the moment. And finally, I mean, we'll go back to Maersk. I mean, Soren Scoop makes a compelling uh, vision for uh, a shipping line that is doing exactly what you say, adding value by going up the chain into logistics and therefore necessarily probably competing with his own customers. Do you think that is a realistic vision of the future? And if so, do you think that other lines will have to follow suit? Well, Maersk is very much betting the farm on it, and there are other, you know, we've had 
CMA CGM this week making a fairly large investment in CEVA, um, another logistics provider. So it, it looks like an area where carriers are keen to go because it does give them a, a chance to get close to the customer and offer those value-added services that they think they can use to differentiate them. Brilliant. James, thank you very much. I look forward to reading the UPS article next week.